This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 1. This is Writing Excuses, up front or on the fly. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're starting season 14. We are. I am Brandon. <laughs> I'm Mary Robinette. I am Dan. I'm Howard. And welcome to season 14. This is the last in our kind of five-year arc, which we started with season 10. Um, we have done How to Write a Novel. We have done elemental genres, and then we did uh, plot and character, and now we're doing setting. As it occurs to me, maybe we should have done that in reverse order. Hey, you know, <laughs> I feel like everything is happening for a reason. It's like we yeah. planned it. Yeah. Yeah. Discovery writing. It's, it's not podcast. really all that uncommon to get to the end of the novel and start your world building. It's that is true. true. That is true. <laughs> Um, and this Which year we, is what we're talking about today. <laughs> we will be studying world building, and um, we will have some guest hosts, which we'll in- introduce to you as their weeks come up. This first week, we're generally going to take some writing topic, general topic, and attack it from world building direction. So we're going back to our kind of familiar, do you, how much do you do up front? How much do you do as you're writing? And how do you work those two different styles together? But we're talking specifically about world building this time. So let me ask you guys, how much world building do you do up front before you start writing a given story? So for me, it varies. I will either, like, I, I usually have some idea of sort of a general shape of things. And then it's not until I get deeper into it that I start to go, oh, you know, maybe I should really know about... Which I find is actually very similar to the way that I do research for historical stuff, that I have sort of broad picture ideas and then I refine my research. It's just that when I'm doing world building, the reference library is my own brain. Okay. I do enough world building. I I world build, or I mean, with Schlock Mercenary, I am often appending to the world building, uh, you know, adding politics or whatever, I world build until I have reached an interesting question. And this is for a given story arc? For a given story arc, an interesting question, an interesting character twist, something that I feel like I could explore for an entire book. Mm -hmm. And then I begin outlining the story. uh, and, And usually within the outline process, I'll realize, oh, oh, I need to answer some more questions. I need to I need to keep world building, but that first point, I world build until I found something that is a really fascinating question. When I say question, like a moral question, like, you know, what if, right. or why, or... You can't, could you name any of those off uh, on the fly, so to speak? I don't want you to put you on the spot. I know when people ask me questions like this, for a specific exam- example, in my lines, mm-hmm. I always am like... Uh, like, yes, I do this all the time, but I can't think of anything off the top um, of my head. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, if immortality technology is freely available, um, where is the pain in death? Okay. Yeah, that's, and a, that's that, a good science fiction question. I, I, I mean, I as soon as I ran into that, I realized... <gasps> Oh, the stories are going to tell themselves. This is awesome. And as the stories, as I write, people are answering that question. Characters are answering that question for themselves. They are finding their pain points. I'm discovering that 
And as I discover them, uh, there are are related pieces elsewhere in the world building that I know I'm going to need to lock down. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, a lot of my world building up front that I'm doing is searching for those points of friction and conflict. Um, uh, I'll often be looking for what's going to make a problem for the characters, what's going to make a problem in the world. An example of this being, you know, Stormlight Archive, it's pretty obvious. I started with the storms. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is going to change all life around it. And that's the sort of thing I spend a lot of time world building up front yeah, I find that it's it's similar for me in that there's often uh, ramifications and ripples. So I've talked before about in Ghost Talkers that Mrs. Richardson was not, she's not in my outline at all. Right. Anywhere. But as soon as I have, and I just had her knitting because she, I needed something for her to do with her hands and then learned about knitted codes and that gave me all of these, these ripples that went through the, through the world. Um and, and this is a thing that, that I'll say often happens that you'll – sometimes you'll discover something deeper in uh, and then you have to go back and do revisions. And I'm, I'm actually going to flag one uh, that you all may have noticed, which is that I introduced myself as Mary Robinette. Mm-hmm. And this is an example of world building that when we set up to do the podcast initially, I introduced I, – I had to make the choice. Do I introduce myself as Mary Robinette, which in the South is a double-barreled name, or do I introduce myself as Mary, which is – easier. And I made that choice because I'd given up decades ago. But the ramification of that is that no one, everyone thinks that Mary is the correct thing. And so I, I was like, ah, let me let me adjust my world building. But it has this, this ripple effect on everything else. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting when you're looking at when you're looking at your your novel, you'll discover something about a character or about uh, the world, and then you have to go back and make it consistent. And fix it all. So we're retconning the podcast. We now. are retconning the so podcast. You've been Mary Robinette the whole time, like Except twelve we're years. Not, we're, I'm, okay, I mean, you're making a joke, and it's funny, and I like that. But we're <laughs> well, not saying you, with the most dead. We're not. <laughs> we're, there was actually a very good joke, Dan. You should write that down. Um, <laughs> we're not retconning it, though. What we are doing. By by now naming mm-hmm. the person who used to be Mary, Mary Robinette, is exploring an aspect of Mary's character, which has always been present, but which, for various reasons, Mary has not floated uh, up into the foreground of the story. And now she is, and the audience learns new and exciting things. Yeah. And it's like, it's also, it's a hanging a flag on it technique, which we use a lot too. When we're, when we have those moments where we're like, ah, because sometimes I will do this too. It's like, I've discovered a thing and rather than going back and fix it, I will justify why no one has noticed (laughs) it up until this point. I have never done that before. (laughs) Ever. Um, uh, Let me ask you, Mary Robinette then, when you discovered the knitting thing, at mm-hmm. what point did you go and study that? And at what point did you put it into the story? So when you, you're creating this character, you're adding knitting to their their character. Did you write the whole book? Did you stop? Did you world build and then go back to the book? So what I did was I, uh, I made a note to self uh, in brackets and then kept going. And then... Uh, a couple of different points where I'm, uh, it, you know, where I'm, I'm kind of waffling on something anyway. I'm procrastinating a little bit. Um, I remember very specifically going back and adding her bringing a sweater 
you know, it, that that someone in the the circle was now wearing a sweater that she had made for them. I, I remember going back and adding that to highlight the importance of the knitting uh, and bring it to the foreground. Um, so that was, but but the she had already knit uh, wrist warmers for everybody. Okay, yeah. Because uh, and and I think that that was actually so that that was actually why I made her knit was because I wanted to. It was a world building detail that I put in to talk about how cold it was because of the spirits. Mm. So that world building, so that's one oh, of those, yeah. uh-huh. those those details that like totally ripples down. It's like they all have wrist warmers. Right. You need to show that it's cold, not just tell us right. it's cold. You need a character, therefore, who is doing this thing. You you hit on that. I love it when that comes together in yeah. the story. Yeah, and all these other things pop up. Um, one of the world building details that I completely made up late is uh, how the monsters work in the John Cleaver series. Huh. I did not actually codify until book four. Like nice. I didn't, I personally didn't even know how it worked until book four. Um, we started and I, I turned the first one in and my editor, Moshe, he said, well, you need to make sure for the rest of the series that there's some kind of consistent element. And so on his recommendation, that's when I had all the monsters dissolve into tar basically and eventually in book four i realized i i have to know how they work i have to know how they function and so that is something that i had to make up throughout the series i kept throwing in more details and finally had to sit down and go okay (laughs) let's one of the reasons define this one of the reasons that that was so effective because what you were writing is horror Mm -hmm. and if as a writer you've already determined how the demons work and fallen in love with it, you are more likely to reveal that detail early rather than late. And by saving, we don't know through the entire first trilogy, and that keeps the first trilogy scary in a way that the the second trilogy, you had to do different things Mm -hmm. because we now had an understanding of how the demons work. Yeah, Yeah. although with the caution, uh, dear listener, that withholding of information from the reader is usually not as interesting as giving them information. Yeah. Let's go ahead and stop for our book of the week. So our book of the week is The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi. And in this book, there's a you know big galactic empire and people travel from point A to point B through the, the flow. And, uh, and what is happening is that the flow is suddenly shutting down and they don't actually know how it works it existed before they got there. So this empire that's basically built on these, we'll, we'll call them wormholes out there, they're not, uh, that's built on being able to travel these vast intergalactic distances is collapsing. And it's it's wonderful storytelling about what it's like to be on on a world where you know that you are not going to be able to leave that planet. And you've, you're used to the idea. Used to yeah. the idea mm-hmm. of being able to, and specifically the way that it's the way it's collapsing in on itself. You can go to the planet, but you cannot get off of it again ah. during this period. So it's it's a really interesting thing. And part of the reason that I thought this would be a good example for for our listeners for this particular episode is that I know that John had those big those big ideas about the flow and and the idea of of it collapsing but i also know that he is very far on the pantser end of the spectrum and that most of the other details a lot of those other things he figured out as he was writing it and you cannot tell which is which 
Excellent. So that mm-hmm. is The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi. So I'm really interested in this specific idea. I think on the podcast in previous years, we've talked a lot about how to research and do your world building. But I'm really interested in this idea of times when you're in the middle and the thick of it, and then you stop and realize you need something, and how you actually go about doing that. And for me, it is almost exclusively coming from character, Mm. because character is the thing I do the least uh, upfront work on. When I'm writing the book, often the passions of a given character and their interests and how religious they are or whatever on whatever uh, axis we're looking at suddenly drives me into saying, well, I need to have these steps. And a lot of the times, even though I'm an outliner, I will just keep going and say, make sure you know more about this when you come back to the story. And... Even as an outliner, I do a lot of that, a lot of the asterisks, a lot of the make sure you add this in here sort of thing. Do you guys do that? Oh, How no, do you- never. <laughs> there are, two, there are two, two categories of, of questions for me. Uh, category one is uh, I don't remember how many ships they actually had in that one fleet, or I haven't determined how many ships they have in that fleet. Uh, anything I write now needs to either be in brackets Howard figure out what this number is, uh, or it needs to be a strip that allows it to continue to be nebulous. And then there are places where there's a recent strip that was a good example of this. Um, If I don't have the fact exactly right, the punchline doesn't work. I cannot write this scene until I have that piece of information, in which case I uh, I will stop writing in order to go research a thing or figure out a thing. In this case, I had to email Mike Cole and ask if an executive officer, you know, the joke was the captain goes down with the ship, the executive officer musters the dead. Uh, because the XO, they are in a, a place where the dead are recovering in a, you know, virtual space, and the XO is taking role. You know, the XO <laughs> musters the dead. And Mike Mike's response was, that is something that an XO would say. I've never heard it before. I was like, oh, oh, Mike, thank you so much. That is perfect. That is exactly the ground I want to be on. I could not have written the joke, though, without somebody telling me that. Mm-hmm. Any other examples, specific ones from your books or stories? So in the Mirador series, my cyberpunk I uh, did a lot of upfront world building on the kinds of technology that I wanted to have. And, you know, drones that did everything and everyone has a computer in their head and started writing and realized that I had inadvertently created what was either a post-scarcity or incredibly wealthy society Mm -hmm. in order to have that level of ubiquitous technology. And so kind of the -the off-the-cuff world building that I had to do was to figure out, well, I don't want that. How can I still have all the toys without... You know, while also having economic pressure, and that is where the idea that robots have taken all our jobs and that there's nothing left for humans to really do—that's where that came from. Was me trying to patch the hole and and make the rest of the world building work. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with those holes. Um, one of the things that I've got in uh, in in the glamorous histories is that I have. Um, I, I decided that, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, that 
that the glamour does not actually cast light, because if it does, then why would you have candles and all of that? But astute readers will notice that I also refer to a warming charm, um, and that 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 uh, and the problem is that if you can actually generate heat with this, that there are a lot of different things start to <laughs> unravel. Um, and by the time I realized that the book was already published. Right. So then I had to justify it. I'm like, well, okay, so why? So maybe it's really dangerous. And then, but if you can do this heat transfer, and that was what more or less, like that was what caused the cold mongers to happen, mm-hmm. was having to justify this decision that I had already made. And, you know, there's a, um, there's an adage that uh, the game designer, the head designer of Magic the Gathering uses, which is restrictions breed creativity. Oh, yeah. Which I've always heard, and I'm sure he got somewhere. And I think a lot of times people are afraid that their world building is going to have holes. But you're going to inevitably have holes in your world building. Mm-hmm. And learning how to take that and kind of roll with it can often lead to sh- stronger and more interesting storytelling later on. Yeah. There's a saying in, in puppetry, if you can't fix it, feature it. Yeah. That's a great saying. Yeah. It, at the same time, um, there are times when you're like, this makes complete and total sense, and uh, and people will still see it as a problem. Like in Calculating Stars, I have, I have an email that you can write to me and say, anachronisms at. And I, I genuinely want to know. But the number of people who have written to me to complain about the transistor radio, and I'm like, I've launched satellites We've got three satellites in 1952 already in orbit. Part of the reason that we did that was because actually transistors come in a little sooner. And the reason the transistor radio is there is to let you know that. But it reads as a mistake. Right, right. Yeah, um, I would say one of the most interesting aspects of this for me was, uh, I've spoken about this a lot, with the Way, Way of Kings, there was a main character in the final product who was not a main character in the, in the original draft. His name is Adolin. And what happened is I needed to split off a bunch of chapters from a different main character because they were feeling too uh, at conflict with themselves. And I needed two strong characters who had strong opinions rather than one character who was vacillating between two opinions. That's the easy way of putting it. And so I said, well, I'm going to make his son a viewpoint character and give his son the other perspective. And it ended up working really well. But then the son, who's a dualist um, and very interested in high fashion and things like this, made me say, well, I need the stuff that he's passionate about. Yeah. I need to know this. And he's become a very big part of the books because of this thing I changed in the first book. And uh, I think that a lot of times writers are scared of this when they don't need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly you do want to try to not have holes, but you're going to anyway. So yeah. learning to roll with them is the yes. way to go. And sometimes you know, even when you don't, people will think you do. Yes. <laughs> well, and something that we've talked about before and that you can see a lot in writing is when the characters are driving the story and when the story is driving the characters. Mm-hmm. And I think characters like Adolin, one of the reasons that he is so interesting is because you built the rest of the characters first and he came out of the world. He was developed more organically because he had to be, because the world already existed. So He's he, a native. Everybody he, else built in. Kind yeah. of the world drove him in a way that he didn't that it didn't drive the creation of the other characters. And I think that, that you can you can tell. Right. And creates in some ways a much stronger well, a strong in a different way. Uh, we are out of time, but Dan has some homework. 
All right. So uh, we decided we were going to gamify this for ourselves to keep this fun. So um, because we've been talking about kind of improvising your world building, we are going to give you three world building elements, and then you need to write a scene incorporating them. And so these are set for you in advance. The rest of the world building you have to make up on the fly to patch all the holes. Okay. And Dan doesn't know what these are. And I don't know what they are. The three of them have written something down on these little cards, and I'm going to read them. Here are your three world building elements. Red food is taboo. Hairstyles are important. And different species or races of softant who cannot interbreed or share food all existing in the same space so there you go we have two food related ones that's kind of cool uh so those are your three elements write a scene using those fill in the rest of the holes as you go as they appear this has been writing excuses you're out of excuses now go write writing excuses is a dragon steel production jointly hosted by brandon sanderson dan wells Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.